0: To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment, visit betterhelpcom FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com Hello, everyone, and welcome to
1: Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January twelfth, twenty twenty-two. On today's episode, we're going to discuss. We're gonna have a spoiler-filled discussion about the book of Boba Fett, Chapter Three, The Streets of Mos Hespa. This is Slash Film editorial director Peter Soretta And joining me on his podcast is Slash Film Editor Brett Omen. Hey, that's me. And as always, Star Wars expert and the, the guy that uh writes our review every week on Slash Film.com, Brian Young.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm just thrilled to be alive.
1: <laughs> Aren't we all these days? Okay, let's um, let's talk about this. Let's uh, well, for, actually, before we talk about it, let's get into our feedback section. And as you know, every week we do this in four different segments. We do feedback where we answer your letters, speculation, concerns. Uh, you can send those to me at peter at slash dot Then we get into our brief reactions. We go into a breakdown, and we end things off with speculation about the future of this in the Mandalorian verse as a whole. Uh, okay, so I, I only got a couple emails this week that I was going to read. Uh, the first one is from Matthew F., and he writes in, Last episode, the question was asked why it took so long for the Huts to get involved with Tatooine after the death of Jabba the Hutt. In the Star Wars comics, there has recently been a crossover event called War for the Bounty Hunters, or War of the Bounty Hunters, this takes place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And in the story, Darth Vader kills all of the Grand Hut Council, except for the for Jabba. So Matthew here says, I imagine it took some time for the Hut family to sort itself from this huge power vacuum, and that there was likely some jockeying for position amongst the Huts, or perhaps Bib Fortuna was working with the twins or wasn't working with the Huts, but considered too low priority compared to the getting other things sorted out. So Brian, what do you think of, of this explanation?
2: Um, You know, we don't have a lot of information and this is a perfectly logical explanation. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe something happened. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. This is part of why I think the timeline is so squishy too. Can you imagine the twins not, um, getting in contact with Bib Fortuna like after five years of Jabba's death or would it be like maybe a couple, you know what I mean? Like at the most, like, and and so it's the timeline is really squishy. So which leads me to believe that they must have had something to do with Bib Fortuna. Um, Although 8D8 doesn't seem to have any knowledge of it, but I mean, this is as reasonable as anything.
1: I don't know. In my my canon, I think Bib Fortuna was there like as the acting uh what do you even call that position? Um ruler of Tatooine.
2: The Kagemusha.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh but Brad, do you do you, what do you make of this?
3: Yeah, I mean, it seems like Bib Fortuna was just kind of sitting around and like reaping the benefits of being in that position without necessarily doing any actual ruling besides letting like the, the crime, like under criminal underworld get split up and letting other people take responsibility. Uh, so, I mean, when it comes to like the huts, you know, moving in, I feel like it's maybe it was more beneficial to them because they even say in this episode later that they, you know, war is not good for business for them. So maybe any kind of conflict was just kind of, not the best course of action during that point in time.
1: Yeah. Uh, later in Matt's email, he speculated that something bad would happen to the Tuscan Raiders this week. And uh, boy, was he right. And then he went on to speculate that the Tuskens will eventually be seen in the present day portion of this, uh, this week's episode or in the future of this. And to use a Dune reference, I think the Tuskens will be Bobo's desert power. So I think he's wrong there. Do you think, I mean, it seems like all of that tribe was killed in this episode. Am I correct? Like it didn't seem like there was any that remained or escaped.
2: Yeah, I got the impression. It it felt like an inverse of a couple of different things. One, it felt very much like uh, Ben Kenobi, like putting the Jawas on the funeral pyre where it's like, well, this is all over now. Um, And that's really what, what Boba did here. Um it also felt very much thematically like an inverse of the classic western trope where the hero comes home and every everyone is dead and the place has been burned by the indigenous folks but this time it's it's twisted the other way around um which is interesting and maybe problematic in some ways this was pointed out to me by by someone on on um um twitter after I wrote my review, they felt it was very much like that inverse of the searchers. And I think that that's a really astute observation, but I do think this is it for them. I think that was, they, they're done.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm kind of sad about that. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, when we get into the breakdown. Um, we got another email from James H and he writes in to point out that before they changed the setting of the train heist and solo star Wars story to Vandor, It took place on some kind of desert planet in the concept art in the art of book looks almost exactly like what we saw in last week's episode of this, like speeder train on a desert, like landscape. So just another example of how star Wars borrows from itself and the unused ideas and the used ideas. And this happens like all the time. I I want to say with almost every single star Wars thing, every episode, every movie, every thing that, that happens
2: i think that's just how george lucas operates right like if you go back if if you read the story transcript from raiders of the lost ark that they did with lawrence kasdan spielberg and lucas like half of temple of doom is in there that they were trying to cram yeah. into raiders and and they were like oh we'll do something else and it's just something that they do they just hang on to everything they're their idea pack rats
1: by the way, if people don't know what we're talking about, because I feel like we're, we're all nerds that understand what you're, what you're talking about, Brian, but there might be people listening to this that don't know what this transcript is. And I, I encourage you, if you have never read this, to go online and search it out. It's the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, what would you search, Brian?
2: Uh, I think if you look up Raiders of the Lost Ark story conference transcript, that's what you'd find. It's so good. It's um, if you can find the the PDF of the original uh, like in screenplay format almost, it's really terrific, but there's a lot of good like copy paste jobs of that that you can find and it's just the three of them breaking down the story of, of the essence of Indiana Jones and it's just a really, really creatively exciting document and I wish they'd released the audio from it.
1: It feels like you're almost in the room as yeah. some of the most iconic characters and scenes of all in movie history are created, and you're like, it, it, "It's yeah." I would I'd love to hear that audio. I, I wish they could do something like like the Beatles get back with with that story yeah. conference on Disney Plus. That I'd would just be...
2: watch that for an hour and a half, even if it was just photos from that story conference narrating the audio.
1: Disney Plus. We gave you a free idea. It'd be probably very cheap to do that.
2: Well, would it be on Paramount Plus though? Oh, um. Well, I mean, I guess Lucasfilm owns it, but I don't know. Like, that's this is why it doesn't exist, though. This mm. this conversation right here.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would assume that they own it because it's that that's probably property of Lucasfilm, which is owned by Disney and not Paramount. I would think. I think the movie. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. okay uh let's get into our brief reactions to this week's episode brad i'm going to start it off with you because you've been kind of quiet so far what did you think of chapter three
3: um i thought that it was a pretty solid episode um i definitely wasn't expecting to lose uh the tuscan raider so early on so that was a bit of a shock um i like the progression of the crime syndicate story so far and we get a little bit of a tease of uh the mystery that um will be driving that i think you know at least the next episode or two of you know who, who this other uh crime syndicate might be that is uh you know a large enough presence and intimidating enough presence to scare away the huts from tatooine um so yeah i think that this is um you know there's been there's some compelling developments here uh i like that we suddenly saw the uh the gladiator wookie back in in action um I wasn't necessarily impressed with the other action sequence, which feels like the slowest speeder chase in Star Wars <laughs> history. Um, but yeah, other otherwise uh, a pretty, a pretty solid episode.
1: What happened to Robert Rodriguez? Like, I felt like, I don't know. I felt like with uh, Alita Battle Angel and even his episode of the Mandalorian, it felt like he had something to prove. Like he was, Coming back, like, I don't know, it just felt, like, so strong and, like, and so angry in the action department. And then the chapter one of this, which was directed by him, and chapter three, which was directed by M, both, I don't know. It, it Like, honestly, that speeder bike chase, I think, in my, like, at least in live action, I think might be the worst directed action set piece in all of live action Star Wars.
3: Yeah, and I don't know, part of me thinks that maybe it's a product of the fact that, like, I, that that merely because of the geography of Moss Espa, that they can't necessarily do something that's super high speed and dangerous and, like, thrilling, because, like, I guess you, you can't have like speeder and those motorcycles like really racing at full speed through those kinds of areas because it's so crowded and there's so much stuff that they're crashing into already so maybe it's just a product of of, of that being established and them having to like work around it but it definitely doesn't make for uh you know an exciting action sequence so i don't know why they didn't just figure out a different way to do it yeah we
1: we can talk more about that later but we should also mention that they probably only built a block of it so they're basically driving around like one square over and over again or whatever. Um, okay, uh what else did I think? Um I don't know, this emotionally this kind of destroyed me because like, I was really not expecting that gut punch of the Tuscan Raiders all being killed. I don't know why I was like not thinking about it or not anticipating. I mean, obviously they're not with him now in the present day story storyline, so I knew something had to have happened, but I didn't anticipate all of them killed uh so that was kind of heartbreaking um there's some fun cameos in this that's what we'll talk about the uh that 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 speeder bike chase scene in concept it should be such a fun star wars scene it just did not work on any level for me um and you know what I, i think most importantly i think this episode just added some much requested forward momentum to the plot like we now know kind of where this show is it, what direction it's headed in so i i, I think uh i don't know i took three episodes to get there so i'm, I'm sure I, I understand why people are being critical of that but um but i enjoyed this i didn't like this as much as episode two but i i i, I really enjoyed it brian what are your brief thoughts on this episode
2: I'm really enjoying this, but I can understand some frustration. And and the frustration I'm having with the show is that with The Mandalorian, everything felt very standalone, even though it was like an adventure a week sort of situation. You understood what the stakes were, even though there was an overarching story. But you understand that each episode kind of had its own theme and felt like it was about something. And every time I've watched one of these episodes of The Book of Boba Fett, I've had to sit back And put on, you know, my critic hat and say, what does this mean? What is this supposed to tell me? And like the best I can come up with is a guess because this feels so much more like a a, a long format movie rather than individual episodes that I think what it's getting at to tell me is this is really about Boba Fett and his constant loss of family. Whether that's Jango Fett, whether that's, uh, you know, Jabba and his folks whether that's uh the Tusken Raiders uh he is a custom or whether that's uh, Cad Bane and Ara Singh in the Clone Wars right he just loses every crew he has or every family he has throughout the course of his life and now instead of trying to find a family he can belong to he's trying to be the head of that family and he's finding out he's not very good at it and I feel like that's really at the core thematically of what's at these episodes, but they're not wrapping that up. They're making it feel a little more episodic about the external plot structures. And so like the, the artist film critic, Brian is going like, this stuff is all really cool, but what is it supposed to mean? (laughs) And I don't feel like I'm going to get that resolution until the end of the sixth episode.
3: Yeah, I guess to piggyback off on that too is like I think my where my reservations are about this show, even though I'm enjoying it for the most part, is that um, like Brian said, like the the stakes that are here aren't entirely clear because like okay, he's not a bounty hunter anymore. He's decided to take over this you know crime syndicate and become the leader of this criminal underworld but if it fails who cares what does he lose because like then he can just go back to bounty hunting like what what does it matter if this actually works out for him or not he could easily just leave it behind and you know someone else would take it over so like what's what's in it for him like like, and, and so like i think that family dynamic you brought up is, is interesting but for me i don't think there's enough evidence there for that to be compelling enough to be the answer to that question
1: you know I, if- I i was gonna say oh. i think the biggest problem with this show is the fact that this was built up from a teaser in Mandalorian season two. So they kind of have to fill in the gaps. And I feel like if this show was, if this show didn't have that, like it didn't have like the setup in Mandalorian season two, and you had, you had this season between Mandalorian season one and season two, where you have a season of Boba Fett and it's told in chronological order. I feel like it would be much more rewarding to see his arc or what's going on with him and here it's, it's kind of like we, we already know where he gets, to, I don't know. It, it, it feels something about it feels weird because we don't, yeah, like you said, we don't know what's at stake here, but I, I mean, we're starting to see it come together. It, it's kind of like one of those, you know, those mystery novels where there's two cases and then you know the detective realizes that both cases are connected. And I feel like we're starting to see that with this episode.
2: Yeah. And, and I will say I I was not as I was not bothered by the, the chase like, like you two were the chase felt to me. I went back actually. And for my review, went and reviewed the um, the opening chase from Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. And thematically they, they felt very similar where you have a comedian like leading the chase. I kind of felt like as I watched it again and then back to back with the temple of doom chase, especially since it crashes Back to the Future style into that crate of (laughs) melee runs, that they were playing this for laughs, not for action. And so watching it through that lens, it didn't bother me at all.
3: By the way, the score score would beg to differ with you, because the music was doing some heavy lifting and making that sequence (laughs) seem exciting.
2: Oh, they did the same thing in in Temple of Doom, though, too.
3: (sighs) But there's something about the Indiana Jones sequences that, like, even though they there's part of it that's played for laughs, it still feels thrilling. And nothing about this felt thrilling.
1: Like, like, uh, like the pod racing scenes from episode one are thrilling, even though they have those, like, funny moments with the droids. And the, I don't know, it, it, something well, about this just didn't feel right. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. I can't put my finger on it because I don't, I'm not even sure it's the slowness of the chase. Like, everybody keeps on saying that and then. I, I think there is a whole faction of people, a, a whole faction of fans that like are really upset about these like rainbow colored bikes or whatever. Oh, I like, loved those, I, oh yeah, I don't, I don't have any problem with that. I think I, like,
2: part of it though is that we're not invested in, in literally any of the characters participating in the chase. Like this is literally a, a, a group of street urchins he pulled off the street earlier in the episode. We don't even know their names, and they're chasing a dude whose name, as far as we can tell, is the mayor's major domo. Uh, like <laughs> like if they don't catch him again like what's the worst what's the worst that's going to happen like they don't get the information that the pikes are showing up they're going to get that four minutes later with their spy at the galactic star liner anyway
1: what if it turns out uh, I'm just pulling this out of my butt right now and I, I'm I, it's starting to fall apart in my head even before it comes out of my mouth what if the major domo is actually the mayor <laughs> No, 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 no. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't
2: even need you to say it for it to fall apart. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry. Uh, Okay, Brian, uh, before we get into the breakdown, any other thoughts?
2: I'm I'm enjoying the show. It's fun. It's giving me cool Easter eggs and connections to other things that I want to see. I just want a little bit more beneath the surface. I want a little bit more subtext and exciting, interesting character work.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, let's let's jump into the breakdown. So this episode begins. We see the shot outside of Jabba the Hutt's palace, and we see this spider droid with a brain and a jar of fluid walk by. I think Brad and I talked about this in like a when we were doing a trailer. Yeah,
3: trailer breakdown. Breakdown.
1: What is this thing?
3: Beomar a, monk.
2: This, yeah, this is this is a Bomar monk that. Uh, was originally in Return of the Jedi. They were designed by Ralph McQuarrie, and they're these monks who find enlightenment by putting their brains in these jars at the ends of these robotic spiders.
1: <laughs> uh, and we, we saw one in like the
3: background
2: of Return of the Jedi? Yeah, in Jabba's palace, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. The coolest uh, thing about this was I like that... I don't know if they actually did stop-motion animation, but the, if they did CG... They made it look like stop-motion animation, which was pretty cool.
2: Which yeah. is a hallmark of Rodriguez, right? If you go back and look at Spy Kids 2, and why wouldn't you? Um, all, of the <laughs> st- all of the CGI in that, in, on the Island of Lost Dreams, with all of those creatures that I think it was Steve Buscemi that like um, created, um, they're all CG animated, but they're animated to look like they have that Harryhausen stop-motion.
1: You know, maybe even the speeder bike chase has a little bit of that because they, like, move in this weird way that I was almost – question. I hate to jump back to that. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but, like, they kind of, like, jerk a little, like, side to side. I was trying to decide, like, are those – are they practical? Like, is are they on a jib arm and then it's removed? Like, something about it looks weird. I'm wondering, is
2: it intentional or is it – Oh, no. I wonder if they would have shot that sequence differently had they not been in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And that could be the difference that we're looking at. Okay. um,
1: So we're in the throne room. 88 shows us a hollow map of Moss Espa and explains that when Bib Fortuna took the throne, he worked with three families to control the city, the Tendoshans, who uh, took the city center? We've seen them in previous episodes. And we even saw them in the first episode. Uh, bring the Wookiee pelt. Uh, the Aqualish took the worker
2: district, and the Clatunians. The Clatunians. Clatunians. Uh, you've seen Clatunians. Uh, one of Jabba's henchmen, Barada, was a clatonian they're
3: Have the we- they're the three-eyed ones aren't They're the. They're the three eyed ones, aren't they?
2: No, those are grand. Those are that's that's what Rees was. Oh, um, oh <laughs> I realize I'm being nerdy again. Um, no,
1: Barada. But by, by the way, I got I gotten a couple like texts over the last week of uh, because Brian went into this whole thing about how the huts have sex <laughs> like <laughs> procreate, and then there was just like beat of sound, and I was just like gross <laughs> and I, 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 I had two people text me about that so anyways uh, brian well, go ahead i hope ahead. they enjoyed it
2: <laughs> yes um no barata like the clatoonians are like if you saw them you'd go like oh that's one of Jabba's henchmen like that's just who they are um
3: yeah and, i just looked, uh, up, looked it up and now i remember
2: yeah so have we seen them or the aqualish in this show yet uh, I believe I want to say we saw an Aquilish in the first episode, maybe at the sanctuary. Um, or no, we saw Aquilish oh, 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 giving yeah. him tribute. Yeah, right you're right. You're right. You're right. Right at the beginning of the first episode. Yeah, um, and we've seen the Trandoshans uh, in both in the last two episodes as well, and they were guarding the city center, yeah. like you pointed out last time. Um, we haven't seen any Clatoonians yet, but that's because don't they have the area out of the sinkhole and that's really we ha- we haven't really seen that territory much on the show so far
1: yeah is that where the end of this episode takes place was that outside or was that like uh where where the the uh starliner was landing
2: i, th- I it 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 makes sense that the spaceport would be outside of the sinkhole so yeah. that would be my guess yeah yeah
1: Okay, so they still don't know who sent the Nightwind assassin, perhaps the twins, perhaps not. Um, After this episode, we've seen this episode. (laughs) Brad, do you think we have a concrete answer on who actually hired the Nightwind assassin?
3: Uh, No, other than just another crime syndicate, probably. It doesn't seem like it's the mayor, doesn't seem like it's the Huts, as untrustworthy as they are. And I think this probably just adds more fuel to the speculation that Crimson Dawn might creep back into Star Wars.
1: What do you think, Brian? Do you think it was... It, I mean, they're they're trying to go for... Uh, what are those things? Is that the fish, uh, fish aliens? Uh, their names escaping me. Pikes. Sorry, the Pikes.
2: So I think the way... Um, They've played it, especially with the way they played the recap of the last episodes. It feels like they're trying to imply that the Huts, the twins are the ones who sent them. And when you go back and look at their actions up until Black Corsantin getting captured, it seems consistent with what they're doing.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So they get a visitor. It's Lortha Peel. It's a, He's a water monger in the workers district, and I actually didn't even notice who this was first time around, but uh, Brad, I, I'm sure you know who this is.
3: Yeah, of course. How can you not recognize him? That's that's Steven Root, uh, one of the finest character actors we have working today. Uh, He's probably best known for playing Milton, uh, the red stapler-wanting employee <laughs> of uh, Inatech in office space. And he's been in a bunch of uh, Coen Brothers movies. He's in HBO's Barry. He's just a, a stellar actor, and it was really fun to see him uh, pop up in the show.
2: Wasn't he was he... also a, a Klingon in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, wow.
1: What, wasn't he in something even more recent than Barry... I'm try- I'm trying to think of where where I saw him.
3: He's in um the tragedy of Macbeth, which is the another new Cohen movie, even though it's only one of the Cohen brothers.
1: No, I didn't see that. I'm trying to think what what he's I one s- of those
2: guys that's in everything. Mm-hmm. Once you start noticing him, he's everywhere, and he's so great at being comedic or sinister or some combination of the two. Yeah. I guess he was in
1: succession, but that was also something I, I wouldn't have seen him in. So uh, okay, uh, so Peel claims that the streets have turned into chaos since Fett took took the throne because no one respects him. But what he what he is really there for is to stop the street gang of the gang of gang of youths from stealing his water, <laughs> and he is insulted on your
2: behalf. <laughs> I love the double-handed uh compliments everyone keeps giving him like uh I could understand how that miscommunication could be uh, uh construed or like I'm insulted for you.
1: Like it's so passive aggressive and great. Um yeah. So anyways, uh before last week's episode I'm not sure that Tatooine's backstory as a planet that was once covered with bodies of water was anything that was in Disney canon? I know it
2: was in Legends. Am I right there, Brian? Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is the first time we've really talked about it or even revisited that kind of stuff. So this is sort of bringing those notions back in, but also if life were we're, were going to have... Uh, if there was any life native to Tatooine, it had to have had water at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, and it's it's, it's great to to add something to this this planet that we've known for so long uh, in the movies and stuff. Uh, but I, I'm kind of wondering, and this might be conspiracy theory hat thing. I, I don't have a theory here, but it seems like in these two episodes, we get three mentions of this after you know what four decades of it never being mentioning mentioned in the, the proper canon, uh, the Disney canon, I should say. Uh, we get three mentions in a period of eight days. Do you think this is a setup for anything, or is it like, I don't know. Like, why do you think it's, it's being mentioned so much?
2: This is the longest period of time we've spent on Tatooine with a whole <laughs> bunch of different people. And it works from a character perspective, too. Of course, the watermonger is going to be interested in uh, the lake that Tatooine was. And, of course, the Tuskens would have had to have adapted from that. So, like, if you look at the characters that we've been following on Tatooine over the years, like, Luke hates everything about being a dirt farmer. um, And he won't even admit that he farms moisture. Um, You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is more interested in looking after Luke when the Mandalorian shows up on Tatooine. He doesn't care where he is. He's just looking for the job and the, the, you know, the, the next people coming. So the Tuscans and actually getting something first person from them. It makes sense that that would be part of their history and someone who makes his business with water. It makes sense that it would come out from there, too. So it's it doesn't seem overt like overly like they're trying to set something up it seems like they're just being true to the characters that we're seeing uh tatooine uh through what do you think happened to the water on tatooine
1: do you think that will ever be answered in like a book or a comic book or anything
2: i don't know if you noticed this but the planet has two suns, <laughs> and that's probably a lot to do with it fair enough fair enough I I guess what the the
1: thing that like that I keep on thinking about is that the Tusken Raiders were native to Tatooine when there were when the Dune Sea was filled with water. So, I mean, how long were the Tusken Raiders on Tatooine? So, I don't know. In my mind, it's like it's not like a thing that would has has happened over like you know twenty thousand years because I don't feel like. I mean, who knows? Uh, do we know how long the Tusken Raiders have been on Tatooine?
2: Um, I don't think there's anything in the... I mean, like, at least yeah. the last 50 or 60 years. but yeah I, mean, yeah, I It's not like we've gone from the High Republic to see what Tatooine is like then, although that would be interesting. I, I don't know. People keep saying, like, I don't want to keep going back to Tatooine, but, like, I would love to revisit it in different eras. And... The High Republic is revisiting the current eras now, so why not?
1: Yeah. Okay, so we are told this youth gang is half man, half machine, modifying their bodies with droid parts. And obviously, we've seen this isn't the first time we've seen cyborgs in Star Wars. There's, you know, they're in the movies, they're in the comics, they're in the animated series. Uh, Fett doesn't seem too interested in anything that Peel is saying until Peel offers to double his tribute if he gets rid of the gang. And here's my criticism or one of my brief criticism character-wise of the episode. Maybe it's the way that tomorrow his performance in the scene, but it really seems to me like he has no interest in this gang or helping this guy until he mentions he's willing to double his tribute. And I feel like at this point in the story, I don't know. I never got the impression that Fett was in it for the money, and you know, there he—I the, he, I thought maybe he would be more motivi- motivated by the claim that the people of Mos Espa didn't respect him as a leader, or that he, you know, I don't know. It just seemed weird that that was a thing that.
2: I mean- in *The Empire Strikes Back*, one of the like two and a half lines that Boba Fett has is, "What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot
3: to me." <laughs> yeah, well, yes, but, uh, but that's, and, that's bounty hunter Boba Fett, though. This is ruling this with is respect, respect to Boba Fett. Fett. Yeah, <laughs> you
1: know, I I think that's one of the criticisms of the show, though. Brian is, I think many people went into the show thinking they were going to get that bounty hunter Boba Fett, who is that character in. The show starts off, even in the Sarlacc pit, it seems like it's almost a different Boba Fett, even though we're seeing kind of like, obviously the Tuskins have had a major effect over this man. But, I don't know, it, it just, I just, I don't know, I, I'm a little, it's a little weird that they decided to play it off of like he's interested in the money when it seems like he's not about that at this point in the, so the story. The Sarlacc
2: pit really changes a person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, uh, so Fett goes into the city and he finds the cyborg youth gang, who, by the way, in the the audio description or the visual descriptive track, is actually called the Mods. So M O D S is what the, the, their group's called, and uh, the leader of that group is called is Drash, and she's played by Sophie Thatcher who I've already said in this podcast is in a show and showtime called Yellow Jackets that is worth your time and money go check it out um, and uh there's been a lot of fans theorizing about this character Brian a lot of fans theorizing this could be someone named Arden Lynn
3: <laughs> oh man Arden Lynn <laughs> that, that's, that's a throwback.
1: <laughs> I know this seems ridiculous, but people are actually giving
2: this. There's like YouTube videos, and there's
1: she, d- you know, she
3: does have a mechanical arm, just like Arden Lynn did. <laughs>
2: yeah, again, again, you're looking at a fan base who looked at Fan of Menace and said, Kidster's obviously Boba Fett. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. like they're going to read all the characters that they want to. I have no trouble believing that this is a new character, and I really loved like the presentation of this character, the attitude of this character and the the like the visual ties and designs to other parts of star wars that this character had. Like it felt like this whole gang they gave them a an 80s refit of all of the 70s punk designs they gave the solo movie.
1: Yeah. Totally. And
2: it's like they're the cyberpunk future that 1983 would have presented them as if we were following this in in real time when Return of the Jedi took place.
3: I do think, as much as I do like these characters and like the, them conceptually, there is something about the look of them that doesn't quite feel Star Wars to me. And maybe it's because they're a little bit more colorful in uh, like this area that we've seen was made to be very industrial, very practical and lived in. Um, and like, I, I do appreciate like that kind of connection to like seventies, eighties style and whatnot, but this felt, this felt more like ca- characters that should have been in Alita, you know, or, or, or a Spy Kids movie rather than yeah. part of Star Wars. And so I, I, yeah. while I appreciate yeah. them. there are aspects I didn't quite, you know, love.
1: You know what? I, I like them, but I think it's the juxtaposition of having them in Tatooine. Like if you had yeah. them in a city like a technological city if you had them in i don't know like i can think just like this dingy desert planet where everything looks like beat up and stuff and they're like they're supposedly poor but their speeder bikes are all like kinds of shiny and oh no it,
2: it that that really reminded me though of like going back to to George Lucas roots too because their speeders looked like a perfect mix in multi-colors of Terry the Toad's Vespa and John Milner's Coupe from American Graffiti. Yeah. And they reminded me of that, like, aesthetic and that rebellious youth. And when you go back to the deleted scenes, that's kind of what Luke's friends all felt like. Luke was not the cool kid indicative of how his friends were at all. Um, it was more like kids like this. And we have... Like sort of since the beginning of Star Wars, that that idea that these swoop gangs and, and the cloud writers and whatnot from the very first like Marvel Comics EU stories are all over Tatooine. So I guess it, it tied to all of the things that Tatooine has been in the expanded universe for so long that it didn't rub me the wrong way. And it tied back to sort of George Lucas in, yeah. in those ways.
1: It definitely reminds me of George Lucas and, like, American Graffiti. Like, like that whole, like, I don't know. It, it does feel like it has roots in George. But it does feel out of place in Tatooine. And, I mean, from a character perspective, Brian, I, I, th- can you explain how, like, these people that they, they don't even make enough money that they can pay for water? I, sure, the water is overpriced. It's <laughs> what? Like, they said, uh... A week of water costs them a month of work or something like that.
3: I mean, there is kind of a place for that, like in hot red culture and like in these places in like places that are like impoverished where they have this sense of pride about certain things in their life and there are things that they will spend money on. And like on the surface, it might look like they're not poor, but it's because like they're trying to create this image, you know, that they're not. And they're trying to have a sense of belonging by having something that is nice and feels like something that they, you know, could have if they did have the money for it. You know, that's what they put their money into.
1: Fair enough. Okay, so Drash admits to stealing water, and they aren't afraid of Fett at all. They claim there is no work for them in the city, and that the, you know, the water prices are being, are, are too high, and Fett decides to employ them himself. So, why do you think Boba Fett chooses to work with them instead of show power, make an example out of them, you know, the at least according to uh, Steven Root's character, you know, the people of Tatooine, uh, of Mos Espa are like, not, they don't have faith in him as a leader. And he comes in there and he takes them and chooses to employ them rather than, you know, show his power. Wh- what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think this goes back to like his you know, the lessons that he learned from encountering the Tuscan raiders, you know, because he starts to stand up for them and sees that they're uh, you know, beaten down and killed by these crime syndicates that are, you know, running material across across the desert and invading their space. And here he sees another, you know, example of an um, impoverished group of people who are mistreated and kept down by uh, you know, a system that System, uh, they're they're systematically kept down, you know, by high costs of you know basic living materials like water and stuff like that. And so, it seems like Boba Fett is trying is trying to rule the crime syndicate from a place where he wants to help the people who really need it, as opposed to letting the rich get richer.
1: Oh, for sure. And also, you, you make a good point there. Maybe he, maybe they are. To him, kind of a reflection of what the, the Tuscan Raiders were in that, you know, the locals around are afraid of them, but he sees that they they're more than what they seem like. You know, he tells her you got guts. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on?
2: on well, this? I think I think Fett probably also has a better grasp of economics than most people in this country where like trickle down economics and just keeping it all at the top doesn't work. And if more people, if if there aren't enough jobs to go around and people can't afford water, they're going to take it. And that chaos isn't because I think he realizes that chaos in the streets that, that um, Steven Root is talking about isn't because of Boba Fett's lack of respect or keeping order. It's because there's no work. It's because the, Republic and the Empire, uh, the, the Empire collapsed. It's because there's a power vacuum. It's because things aren't operating on Tatooine the way they should be. And employing these people is a smarter way to get more allies and to get the the economy that he's supposed to be in charge of moving. And honestly, it worked out in his favor because they ended up saving his ass.
1: Yeah. So Lortha Peel is not happy about all this, and Thet offers him a small percentage of what he believes he is owed to end the squabble. And he also tells him that he needs to charge less for his water, which I think is going to, you know, be good for all the the residents of of uh, that district. Uh, so, anyways, uh, we finally get to the chapter three title reveal. It's revealed as the Streets of uh, Streets of Moss Espa. And I I don't have a theory on a dual meaning here, Brian. Do you have any I- any ideas?
2: Uh, it evokes uh, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, actually. <laughs> um, and and really, Drash is is uh, is Harvey Keitel.
1: So, so what you're saying is you don't have any any. This is, no, I mean, like, what's the, na- the, the name again,
2: on the this is this is ultimately what I've been saying. Like, is is my struggle with the show is that the subtext really hasn't been revealed all that much, right? Maybe streets of Mosespa is going to have a, a a deeper meaning when this is all over, but right now it's literally just like the streets of Mosespa.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. I I agree with you. I, I I don't see any deeper meaning this week. Okay, uh, back into the back to uh, tank. Boba Fett is having dreams of his past again. First we see um we see that like that same kind of moment where Boba Fett is a kid and Jango Fett is flying away. Why does this moment keep on coming back? Everything else is told in chronological order, but we keep on like what about this is so pivotal for this character?
2: This is the first time he feels like he's losing his family.
1: Yeah. I mean that's a that, that, that that's a good one. Do you do you think we're going to see more here? Or do you think I this is going to repeat so. itself? Yeah.
2: I I hope so. Um I don't know how they're going to do it, but I hope that we do see more here. And I hope that maybe we get into the more more actually into the Clone Wars era after he's lost his father and and maybe we see him lose that family of Cad Bane and Arsin uh somehow from that perspective. Um who knows?
1: Okay, and then from there, we go back to the Tusken Raider storyline. And, uh, guys, what a coincidence that Boba Fett has dreams that are replaying the events in chronological order from Return of the Jedi to Mandalorian in Season 2.
2: It uh, It's beyond belief.
1: Uh, I mean, that's how my, my, my dreams work, right? So, um, okay, so Boba leaves the Tusken Raider camp, on the back of a wampa, and uh, actually, I want to point out really quick that this Tusken Raider camp looks like it's in the middle of a desert.
3: You said you just said a wampa,
1: or, or sorry, did? It, <laughs> oh my god, bantha! That's a, whole,
2: that's a different episode, and I want to see that too.
1: I know the difference between a wampa and a bantha. Don't don't write me emails. <laughs> uh, yeah, on the on the back of a bantha and um i wanted to point out that uh, someone on twitter i'll put it in the show notes but they posted this like video footage is taking on like a some kind of aircraft uh looking down at uh the filming location of where this was filmed and it was actually filmed in this parking lot in carson california (laughs) but you would never know it looking at it so that's kind of cool um so he rides into Mos Isley and uh he sees the stormtrooper helmets being placed on the spikes uh, that we saw in Mandalorian season one, episode one. And I, I know it was episode one, or was it episode two? It was one of those two. I know that because it was all it was in all the marketing. Three.
2: Episode three. I think that's when that was Dave Filoni's second episode, or no, it was the episode with Palimato uh, to start with, and where he's first on Tatooine, right?
1: maybe it was then I, I i do know that it was that shot was in all the marketing because whenever they had like a merchandise or like screen prints before the show came out, or like the during that first season of the show it all had that like it was going to be some kind of pivotal part of the show and it was kind of like this just you know very visual motif that like you know went by really quick in that episode um but uh if if you're not looking carefully you might miss someone walking in the background there. Brian, did you see this?
2: I didn't catch it on my on my viewings this morning, um, but I did read the slash film piece about it.
1: Yeah, so we see Pelimoto, who is the Amy sedaris's character from Mandalorian, and just walking by with some pit droids in the background. And uh, she's not credited in the credits, so it makes me wonder if that's just a like, completely CG creation or what. But um, it's kind of cool to see, see uh, you know, things that we saw in the Mandalorian crossing over with this, because we're finally seeing him out of most uh, Espa, and he's in a place that we saw in the Mandalorian. Brad, do you think we're going to see more crossover here?
3: Between the show and the Mandalorian?
1: Yeah. Do you think we'll even see, well, I'll be more specific. Do we, you think we're going to see Amy Sedaris ever again in this show?
3: Oh, I mean, I would never count out seeing any characters like that. You know, I mean, Star Wars loves to bring back little minor characters and have them pop up and play little roles. Um, and you know, I think it's definitely something that will, that could happen, uh, whether it's likely or not, remains to be seen, but I think the eventual crossover with Mandalorian in general, also, it just, just has to happen, you know, because it sounds like they're, they're building to something that will cross over, um, a all of their live action shows that they have in the works um, between Mandalorian and Ahsoka and this and uh, all that stuff so yeah I think that there there'll be something brewing there as time goes on
1: for sure okay so Fett meets with a Pike leader and actually Brian you messaged me last week a Pike leader what you messaged me with who was it the person yeah. who voiced or was it the person who played the Pike leader? I'm guessing it the is the voice. The person
2: who voiced the Pike leader in last week's episode was Stephen Stanton, who is Tarkin in all of the animated shows and a number of other voices, including Colonel Mibert Gaskin, who I know is a fan favorite. Um, and uh, well, I like him, but he's not actually a fan favorite. <laughs> um, uh, and then this week, it's actually Phil Lamar.
1: Yeah, which by the way, I, I don't watch Futurama, so I or I don't really know voice actors. So when I looked him up when I was going through the credits on IMDb, and I pulled up his page, and I realized that this person has four hundred ninety six projects that he's been a part of.
2: Yeah, over his and career, he, you've seen him in stuff too, though. I mean, he was a regular on Mad TV, and he was Marvin in Pulp Fiction.
3: Yeah,
1: and um, he's done so much voice work. Mm-hmm. that i think i counted his star wars roles including video games and i think he this is like his 15th role in star wars
2: <laughs> yeah no it's a lot it, you'll people would recognize his voice most for his most consistent voices of uh he's the animated voice of bail organa and kit fisto and Orn freeta who's yeah. the twilek senator
1: yeah he was also in resistance and bad batch uh yeah. bail, bail Ur- organa and rebels and clone wars uh, he uh, Hermes Conrad in Futurama. Is that how you say the name? Yeah. yeah. And, and Samurai Jack and Samurai Jack. So, yeah. Um. Okay. So the Pikes already paid protection money to the Nikto biker gang, which we now learn is called the Kintan Striders. Brad, we had like a. There was like a when I woke up this morning and I went into our, our slash film writer slack there was like a conversation like a mile long about this
3: yeah this was kind of confusing at first because so far we've seen this uh the the gang that they're talking about in this scene referred to as the nikto gang uh it's been in um subtitles and closed captioning to reference them when we hear them and they're doing stuff on on screen in the first two episodes uh and this is the first time they've actually referred to by what we've come to deduce is their gang name um, and it was confusing because at first the the Pike leader uh, mentions the the Kintan Striders, and then Boba Fett mentioned something about the Speeder Bike Gang, and so you kind of have to connect the dots and realize that's who they're talking about. Um, but like, there's little details like in throughout the uh, this episode that you have to really pay attention to to pick up on that confirm that this is just their their gang name uh like their um there's some artwork that's um on their their chest pieces their armor is that what it was or was it their weapon i think it was on their
1: back like if you look at the scene where they're in tashi station in last week's episode you see on the back of their um i'm not sure if it's a vest or an armor but it's almost like you know how biker gangs have like yeah, their vest leather and...
3: vest with their, like, patches and stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a similar thing. And so the Kinten Strider um, is one of the creatures that you can see uh, as a holographic uh, piece on the Dejeric board. That It's that chess-like game that Chewie and R2 play in the Millennium Falcon. And this particular one is kind of the, the big, beefy creature who carries a hammer. And you can see that design uh on their their armor just like as if they it was their you know leather vest like a biker gang you know which they they are a speeder bike gang so they are the Kintan striders
1: and i didn't realize this like you know in the first week episode when when was it first week yeah i think it was when uh the young tuscan had Bubba fett as a prisoner and he came across them kind of uh raiding someone's house and they were uh Placing their mark on the outside of the house. And I, I joked that it looked like uh, uh, Jeff Jarrett's logo or something because it looked like a JJ. Uh, I recognize Arabesh pretty well, but I did not recognize this and I didn't do the research. But this is actually a letter in now which is the letter K. So K for Kintan. So I don't know. Just, there's, there's, uh, so that that is what they're, um, you know, uh tagging uh all over the place. They want everybody to know that they are responsible. Uh so Fett assures the pike leader that the Nikto bikers will not bother him again. And then he heads back to the Tuscan camp where he finds it ravaged, uh I I would say decimated, uh Raiders and banthas. I mean, uh, <laughs> making me think of saying <laughs> around. Banthas are massacred. Um I don't know. I, I was really upset when this scene came. I'm not sure why it, it hit me as such a gut punch because I I realized that these these raiders that he was making these relationships with couldn't that they probably didn't exist in the future timeline of the the. You know, Jabba's palace timeline, but I didn't. I really didn't think all of them were going to get killed. Brad, were you surprised by this?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This was really shocking because I, I, I felt that this was a story that was going to carry on and was going to be a big part of Boba Fett's uh, character arc, where he kept learning things from them and working with them. So, yeah, this was a very surprise blow.
1: Brian, any thoughts on on this this uh, pivotal if- scene?
2: It makes a lot of sense from a story standpoint if they're going to show us future flashbacks where he goes back and finds the Slave one, and show us what sets him on his journey to find the Mandalorian and his armor, um, which I think opens the door even more certainly that, that, we're, that we might see some, some Timothy Oliphant because he's going to have to track his armor to Mos Pelgo. Hmm. How
1: many Banthas need to die in this series? What do they have against the banthas? Like, can, can we start a, a petition, to save the banthas? Because they, they just like slaughter Banthers left and right in this in the series. I I'm think
2: it's a- it's it's part of that wild west trope too, though, right? Like we talked about in Dead Man, where it's just like they're shooting the buffalo. Um, they're the buffalo in the wild west, and like no one cares. There's just this abundant resource that everyone's totally fine slaughtering, no matter what.
1: Okay, so we, we see the tag of the Kinten gang. Are they solely responsible here?
3: I doubt it. I think it's possible that they did this of their own volition, but part of me also thinks that the uh, the Pike Syndicate could have easily ordered them to do so in order to keep the arrangement that they have and to, you know, basically mess up whatever plans Boba Fett had was to intimidate any of them. Um... There's I mean, I think there's also a possibility, although I feel like it's less likely based on that, you know, that exchange that Boba Fett had with the Pikes, but that maybe there's some kind of deception that it wasn't actually the the Kintan Striders, but someone making it look like it was to create, you know, uh, some kind of rift between all of them.
2: Hmm. I think the Pikes probably gave the Kintan Striders the same speech about like, cool, these guys claimed this as well. We'll pay you, but you're going to have to get rid of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that that sounds very uh possible. Okay, so Boba Fett is awakened from his back to dream by the Wookiee Gladiator that we that I'm gonna call Black K because that's what um Afra called him, and because I have trouble saying his name. Um but we saw him last week with the twins, and there's a brutal fight here, which is a bit better choreographed than the one that we, than the action scene we see later in this episode. There's electrified brass knuckles. There's, uh, I don't know. Brian, what what are your thoughts on this whole action sequence?
2: I thought it was super cool. It felt very much like a street fight, much better than the street fight in the first episode. And it was cool watching a Wookiee sort of like have to deal with a lot of opponents and for Boba Fett to have stood up to Black Kersantan as long as he did, uh, I think actually says a lot about Boba Fett uh, and, and, or maybe less, uh, you know, it says a lot about how maybe shabby Black Kersantan is. Um, but it was a really refreshing surprise to see the street gang get involved and have them fearlessly get involved with a pissed off Wookiee and uh, watch how that all plays out across these really cool sets in Jabba's palace.
1: Brad, do you have any thoughts on this whole fight sequence?
3: No, I thought it was great. I, I liked seeing the, the, uh, the mods gang in action against the Wookiee. I like seeing a, a big, tough Wookiee character like this, especially those, uh, electrified brass knuckles were pretty badass to see in action as well. So yeah, good stuff. Way better than the speeder chase.
1: Yeah. And it was amazing to see that. Like it was Boba Fett, the mods, the Gamorrean guards, uh, Fennec, and they barely were able to get him like to fall into the the you know the empty rancor pit. Uh, which seems like they're building up this character. If, if they're really going to send him on his way, well, we'll get to that in a second. But it seems like they're building up this guy to be very uh, tough. And it, he's supposed to be gone? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in one second. Uh, so Fett sends the injured gamorian guard to his back to tank which i think is cool because it shows uh, a bit of kindness i feel like someone like jabba or bib fortuna might like just shoot him and you know cut the losses or something uh it doesn't need him in a, you know using his back to tank because they're selfish uh but here it, it, it's a it's a nice bit even though it's a, one uh throwaway line there uh the next scene there is a feast of intergalactic delicacies, which Fett is unable to enjoy because he knows he needs to respond. Um, there's all sorts of stuff on this, on this table. What is that turkey-like creature?
2: So that's a Nuna uh, or a swamp turkey. We first saw these back in Phantom Menace. They're natives of Naboo, but they're also raised in other planets, uh, including Batu and Tatooine, as... Turkey, essentially. And Jabba actually has one in his box in Phantom Menace during the pod race. And so uh, you can buy them at Galaxy's Edge as Nuna Turkey Jerky. And uh, they're allegedly delicious. (laughs)
3: Uh,
1: You know what? We don't really see much food in the Star Wars galaxy or we haven't thus far in live action which is why I think like blue and green milk are some of the most iconic food items you can buy in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So I say what I'm about to say uh, might seem like such a nitpick that people are probably going to make fun of me. But to me, as someone who like loves Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and spends so much time in Batuu, it annoys me that we're on Tatooine, a place that has Rontos, a place that like they mentioned Rontos, I think, minutes later? They mentioned Rontos, yeah, yeah and, yeah. and there's an iconic food item in Butte called Ronto wraps, and th- there was a wrap on the the table. But why not? Why not just like put a couple Ronto wraps there? Why not have some bit of this land that you know so many Disneyland and Disney World fans love, and have that bit of canon that was created in that land be on screen. <laughs>
2: I mean, like you look at a ranta rap, and it's not instantly identifiable to a lot of people, but the nuna is, yeah. and it had it's it's much more dramatically satisfying. Oh, oh I'm not I'm not saying
1: don't have the nuna. Have that nuna. Have that like octopus thing. Have but also like have the ranta rap in there somewhere. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I I guess it just comes off of my um annoyance uh, like I don't know. I, I feel like we've seen Batu in the comics and the books and I guess video games, but we still haven't seen it in any of the sh- the shows or movies. And I am I'm getting impatient because I want to see it, it like some kind of influences from this well, land that they've created appear somewhere visually and we, not just me reading it.
2: We have in bad batch, bad batch, um, uh, the, the outpost mix popcorn plays a sensual thematic bit in bad bash
1: fair enough fair enough
2: i don't know i i i think i'm also
1: annoyed that like galaxy's edge was closed for like a year and a half and (laughs) john favreau or rodriguez or someone could have like literally gone down to anaheim and had like a whole thing to shoot a scene somewhere and uh, as far as we know that didn't happen but okay let's move on this is just my nitpicking as being a a disney parks fan but um okay so the twins arrive with tranquilized uh, with a, a gift of a tranquilized rancor and they apologize they reveal that they have learned that the mayor already promised this territory to another syndicate and are immediately leaving tatooine and suggest that Boba Fett does the same. In fact, they don't even want the Wookie. You can have him for the trouble. We don't care. You know, keep him. That keep him as tribute. I don't know. The, I I hate to be the person that like is still on the like Crimson Dawn train or like trying to. I, I <laughs> I'm I I. I don't want to be on that train because I feel like it, it might be like the Mephisto of the show where the, there's a lot of fans that have theories that like Crimson Dawn is going to play into the show. And it, when it doesn't happen, they're going to be disappointed. And I'm probably propagating that by keep on bringing it up. But it seems to me that these twins are like really scared. Like they're like, we're getting the F out of here. this syndicate I don't know, like, are the Pykes really that
2: scary? Is that how you read it? Because, like, when I read that scene and the next scene with the Rancor Keeper, I'm like, this is all a trap. You're being too foolishly trusting Boba Fett. Like, you should know better. Why do you think, or how do you think it's a trap? That Rancor is going to eat him. Black Kersantan is going to come back. Like, do you know Hutts to be any less tenacious than, like, like for them to just go like, oh... The mayor, some random authorian, promised this area to the Pikes. We're just going to let them get away with it. Like, you, you've you've had two episodes of them saying like they wouldn't assassinate anyone without approval from the Huts, and we can't kill them because the Huts are too powerful. Like, you really think they're just going to cut bait and run?
3: I mean, well, I think to to Peter's point, like that's actually I, I felt the same. Is like that that means then it has to be somebody behind this who is even more powerful, who the Huts are scared of because the Huts. <clears throat> they sure they sent uh, you know Black K to kill Boba Fett, but Boba Fett didn't have to release him. He could have kept him, and he could have kept him in the Rancor pit. But he but he didn't. So like that's probably not part of the Hutts' plan. Just giving up Black K, and the Rancor stuff legitimately seems like something where Boba Fett is going to create a bond with that Rancor, and it's going to be his, and he'll probably end up riding it at some point. So I don't think any of that is part of like the trap or anything. I, I really do think that whatever is happening, the Huts are legitimately like, no, nah, screw this, we're out of here.
2: Well, I guess the way we've talked about the Pikes, the Pikes in previous iterations in Clone Wars and in Solo um, haven't been that outwardly threatening. They're, well, they
3: I, don't think, very... I don't think it's the Pikes that are... That are, are other... so... Yeah, I think there's something beyond the Pikes, and I think that's what is scary to them.
1: That's what I think, too. And maybe that's not Crimson Dawn, maybe it is. I don't know.
2: <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But I I mean I read that whole thing as though Boba Fett was being way too trusting about these these huts just going like, here's a whole bunch of peace offerings. Uh kill that Wookiee. Here's a Rancor. Have Danny Trejo. Um like it, it just felt way too convenient for the story, and they're such cool characters. I feel like they're pulling more strings than they're letting on because why would you just introduce them and have them walk away the next episode?
1: We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I guess my other question here is that Boba Fett decides to keep the rancor that was gifted to him. And I guess the trainer, because I guess the trainer comes with the rancor, um, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, But he decides to release Black K, and I don't know. Like it seems like Bubba Fett like took in this tribe of of uh, the mod gang. Like he saw like that they had potential to be part of like this new tribe that he's building to surround himself with. And I think after Black K basically brutally beat all of their butts like wouldn't why would he decide just to give to to let him go i feel like at that point i would i would ask black k to be part of my part of my crew
2: maybe he spent his whole budget on the mods that he didn't have it like he'd need another (laughs) line item in a budget amendment to to be able to afford black k
1: (laughs) Always thinking practically, Brian. Always. I, practically. I
2: I I don't know. Like I think you're right. I think it's it's like why didn't he invite him to stay and fight for them or with them? And maybe that moment will still happen. I can't imagine that that they would bring Black Crescenten in, um, for just these two episodes like this.
1: And yeah. they build him up big time. They like basically yeah. say that he could destroy all of them, and they kind of lucked into getting him into the the basement there.
3: Yeah, I feel like, if anything, it'll turn into the the thing where, like, he comes back and ends up being an ally because he was shown mercy or something like that.
1: Okay, so uh, the Rancor is out in his new home in the dungeon below the palace. Uh, I guess right now let's talk about uh, the cameo here, which is a a cameo I guess should have been expected because it's a Robert Rodriguez uh, regular. And that is, uh, who is that Brad?
3: Danny Trejo or Machete, uh, as you might know him as. He's been in a, a bunch of Robert Rodriguez's stuff. Uh he's another great character actor. Um he also has his own uh taco uh chain over in uh California and uh and donuts as well, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. donuts.
1: I I still haven't eaten at the donut or the taco place, strangely. Yeah.
3: So this is yeah, this is a fun uh little cameo uh supporting role by one of Robert Rodriguez's regulars.
1: Yeah. And uh, normally, um, not a, not a fan of that, but I think Danny Trejo fits the Star Wars universe like almost perfectly,
3: especially being a Rancor keeper.
1: Yes. Um. Okay, so Bubba becomes friendly with this new Rancor and wants to train him, to, uh, train to ride him at some point, which I can totally see a badass like in uh the last episode of the season. I, I I totally see him. In his Boba Fett gear, riding the Rancor. It's going to be awesome. Um, I I do think that this series, so far, is kind of trying to show us, is making us rethink what our, what our thoughts are on these creatures and aliens that we assume to be monsters from the original trilogy. Um, I, I know uh, Star Wars Explained made a good point about how the Rancor is kind of a, uh, a reflection of Boba Fett himself, someone who was raised and trained for violence since birth, just like a Rancor. Um, and, uh, you know, but, you know, the, the Rancor teacher tells them they can be very loving. They they form very strong bonds with their owners. And uh, they, they almost, like, seem to be like a pit bull or something, like a dog that... Um, if you want you could have them sick on st- stuff but the it, it seems like there's more to this year brian i w- wanted to hear your thoughts on the rancor in this episode
2: um I, you know i think i think it's fun stuff um it's it's something that they've been doing again bad batch kind of featured a rancor uh another rancor not Patissa, the one that luke kills but a different one heading to Jabba on tatooine and uh I think this stuff is fun. I don't know if it's going to pan out and and maybe, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but like I, the whole time I was like, he's not going to imprint on that guy. He's just going to eat him. Like that's, that's the, the way it works. And so maybe, <laughs> what didn't maybe I'm just thinking, no, it didn't happen. It didn't happen yet, but he was still tranquilized. Right. I don't know. Um, but I, and, and there's this degree of sin, like, I don't know. Danny Trejo felt a little sinister in that scene to me. Like it wasn't, <laughs> And maybe, maybe I'm just reading it completely wrong, which is which is something I'm willing to cop to if if it doesn't turn out to be the way um, to be that way. But I'm I'm really excited about it. I love seeing Rancor as an action. It was fun seeing it there, and and I hope Boba Fett does get to write it. It doesn't try to eat him, but um, you know, I I did love the reference in this scene to the holiday special though.
1: Wait, what reference was that?
2: So he says, I've ridden beasts ten times his size. In Boba Fett's first appearance, he's riding that giant dinosaur creature in the holiday special.
1: I totally missed that reference. Brad, what did you think of this uh, scene with the Rancor?
3: Yeah, I like this, uh, you know, like you said, this repurposing of Star Wars creatures and kind of giving them a little more depth than being just these these monsters that we recognize, you know? Um, It's... I think that the uh, the mere image of Boba Fett riding a Rancor is just cool as hell, and I feel like you you don't introduce something like that unless you're gonna make good on it. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed for that to happen. But uh, yeah, I'm curious to see you know what what they do with the Rancor as a creature. Also, um, the way that they brought it to life was impressive too because they did a similar thing where uh, if it's CG, they made it look like a practical creature, kind of the way it moved. It wasn't as smooth as. Uh, you know, a regular CG creature would be. They made it resemble, you know, the similar stop motion puppetry of the Rancor from Return of the Jedi.
1: Oh, totally. Um, and then there's also a line here. Uh, it is said that the witches of Deathmore, uh even rode them through the, what did he say?
2: The forests and, forests and fens, and fens Yeah. their planet, yeah. Um, and this is a reference to Dave Wolverton, now Dave Farland, his book "The Courtship of Princess Leia," which introduced the witches of Dathomir uh, in the first place in the Legends canon, and then they were brought in in um, they were brought in to the canon as Asajj Ventress's people, led by Mother Talzin in the Clone Wars, and uh, you know they wrote rancors in the book, and that was always really a cool image but we never really got to see it and uh now it's a legendary story like ahsoka says there's always a little truth in legends
1: do you think we're gonna ever see anything more of that or do you think it's just a fun mention
2: well i mean the witches of dathomir are dead um, the Separatists killed them during the Clone Wars led by General Grievous and they had their final stand with their zombie armies yeah. and don't well, I don't, I don't the mean battles.
1: in this series but I mean like do you think that now that it opens them because you're, you're saying that they were legends they're not in the Disney canon but this now confirms them in Disney canon do you think we'll see like them appear I mean, like, in something?
2: It could just be a story or maybe we could go back to the High Republic era and see Dathomir at that point I mean, anything's possible. It's hard. After they brought back Darth Maul, it's hard to say, like, at, at the point where they brought back Darth Maul and Han Solo uh, or Harrison Ford back to the franchise, it's hard to say never say never. or Like, it's hard to say that something will never happen. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so 88 says that the mayor is unavailable for the next 20 days, so they decide to pay him a visit alongside the mods, and uh, this is where we get our first real look in daylight of the, uh, the as the description descriptive uh, audio describes a candy colored Vespa inspired speeder bikes um, and it seems like uh, we're not against that it seems like uh, I, I like the way they look they just uh, not quite fitting Tatooine but whatever um, they barge their way into the mayor's office and he's gone and Majordomo has escaped on a land speeder and the mods chase him on speeder bikes in the slowest speeder bike chase and probably uh like i said the worst action set piece in star wars live action ever um did (laughs) i i feel like there's some fun concepts here there's some fun stuff to be done but it just doesn't play out the way I, I know we talked about this earlier but is there any more to be said about this feeder bike chase that I think none there's, of us loved
2: there's there's a bunch of cool references in it there's a bunch of cool like easter eggs and things and you know going back to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom uh the chase even busts into a rickshaw droid like one we'd seen in Attack of the Clones that took Anakin and Padme to visit Watto in Mos Espa um There were some pit droids that were super cool. Uh, We could talk about that that crash through a painting, which is really cool on its own.
1: Oh, yeah, and that Um, was basically like a redone version of Ralph McQuarrie's concept art from Return of the Jedi of Jabba's Palace.
2: Yeah, they just, they Photoshopped Luke out of the picture. Yeah. I also think
1: it's interesting that there is, like, in this city, there is that painting, which has... Boba Fett is on the side of Jabba there like kind of being subservient to Jabba and uh maybe that's like an image that is
2: going around oh no well it you know Boba Fett worked with or and for Jabba for years yeah. uh as far as anybody knows um you know since the special editions Um we've known that that Boba Fett was in Jabba's employ since at least before the time of the destruction of the first Death Star. And he was still in his employ in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So there's a good four years plus where Boba Fett was just Jabba's, you know, muscle. Yeah. And so him being in that painting it wouldn't be surprising in universe. Yeah.
1: And the the major domo, uh his land speeder looks a lot like the same model that han used in solo star wars story different color um drash crashes down on the major domo's land speeder sending him flying through a farmer's market and crashing into a cart full of melorunin fruit which uh as you mentioned earlier is kind of a lot like i'm surprised this uh, the director of photography on this one wasn't the uh, the guy from last week who did back to the future because it, w- it felt so much like, you know, Biff crashing into the manure truck and I'm surprised it wasn't like <laughs> something grosser than in fruit, but
2: yeah, well, I, they want to tie it visually to, to rebels and galaxy's edge where you can see maybe run. Yeah. Um, but I, I also got some vibes of like the pod race out of this, like, Again, like it felt like it was supposed to be way slower speed than those things. Like she runs up on the ramp and then comes down and jumps on him with her speeder, the same way Anakin does to Sabulba. Um, they use some of the same sort of techniques. Like the the guy with the flame torch and like the blowtorch in his hand feels a little bit reminiscent to some of the weapons that Sabulba has um it just feels like it's supposed to be a very lower like a low stakes low speed thing for better or for worse
1: i do feel like the mods and like the weapons they use sound cool like on paper in concept that should be cool but here i forget who said it was it was a brad that kind of described it as like spy kids meets alita battle angel or something it didn't I don't know. It doesn't quite, Brad. What were your thoughts on this whole sequence?
3: Yeah, it's just it just felt clunky to me. You know, I just I was hoping for something more, especially because like I do think that their their speeder bikes look cool, even if they don't fit in with the the Tatooine uh, vibe and like all the other kind of technology that's around there. Um, but yeah, it's just it was just felt executed very very poorly, and I was just not a fan.
1: Okay, so uh, a gigantic starliner lens. And a group of pikes empty out, dozens of them. Uh, The mod with the mechanical eye sees this and operates a hollow booth to alert Boba Fett of this. And uh, they have this really bad keep an eye on them joke, which is probably the worst joke in in all of the Disney Plus live action uh, Star Wars shows. And...
2: I don't think any of that is worse than, I think the worst line in all of Star Wars is an empire though. And it's that Imperial who's like, good. Our first catch of the day.
1: Okay. Yeah, that, that is bad. That is bad. (laughs) Uh, By the way, this uh, character is named Scad. I know this because in the credits it, it uh, says his stunt double or something like that. Um, And he's played by Jordan Bulger, who was a regular on a, Kiki Blinders, and The 100. So anyways, um, so Fennec says that this is just the first wave. There's going to be a war coming. And Fed says they got to be ready. And uh, that is the end of the episode. I do want to mention that in the credits, the credits do credit two directors of photography, David Klein, who was Kevin Smith's old Director of photography and did work on uh, the Mandalorian seasons, and a guy named Paul Hugin, who is the second unit director of photography on the rest of the season. Uh, it's very, very, very unusual to see t- two director of photography is credited together. It's kind of like how often you see two directors who aren't brothers uh, given credit to- together. So this leads me to believe. I don't have any evidence of this, but it leads me to believe that probably David Klein had to leave the production partway through because of illness or something, maybe COVID-related. I'm speculating there because of this being shoot shot during COVID. But uh, I don't know. I just it was something I noticed in the credits, and you don't. I, I the, the amount of times I've seen two director of photographers credited together on a movie have been very very little. So, um. Do you guys have anything else to say about the episode before we get into speculation?
2: I, I wanted to ask you about what I thought could have been an Easter egg being a Galaxy's Edge nerd. Oh. Um, when the Starliner came down and they're like, oh, they came on the Starliner, the first thing I did was went back and looked at all of the art for the, the Halcyon, and it's like, okay, it's not the same ship, but it seems like it's in the same class. But as it lands and you it pans down. It looks like there's a woman carrying one of the like animal crates that they hand out the, the, the plush like animals and stuff at the creature shop in, in galaxy's edge. It looked like she was carrying one of those like luggage and it had the grate on the one side for it to breathe and everything. And I'm wondering if I'm insane or if that's actually, I didn't put it in my review. Cause I was like, huh. maybe I'm just seeing things.
1: I did not notice that Brian. I, I'm, Right now, pulling it up on my phone, I'm gonna fast forward to that moment because I have it right open as that's happening. i'm gonna take a look at this just to tell <laughs> for anybody that cares about this uh so this is when the pikes are getting out of the the starliner you're before,
2: saying before like right as the starlight the first pan, like the shot that tilts down where you see people kind of walking by uh. as uh As the gangplanks are like coming down, as the entry ramps are coming down, there's like a woman walking by the camera, and she has one of those like, um, I mean, it could have just been a random piece of luggage, but I got the impression that it was a real life version one of, of one of those cardboard boxes they give you when you buy a creature. I mean, and I it, thought it's that as similar. A Galaxy's Edge nerd, you might be like, oh yeah, <laughs> it, it's similar.
1: I'm not. I'm not. Sh- I'm not convinced that, that that's a direct reference, but it, it is similar. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought you were going to say the Starliners themselves because, um, yeah, when, when they said the word Starliner, I was like, Ooh, is this going to be in a, re-? And it, it didn't look, it doesn't match up to what, uh, the yeah, house. No, not is. At all. Yeah. So, um, but uh, it's, <laughs> Brian, I want more Galaxy's Edge in the as you can tell. So I, yeah. I'm always looking for that. Uh, well, let's. Uh, we're already going along with this, so let's go. Let's jump into speculation. Uh, I, I already know what Brad, Brad says about this, so Brian. I'll ask you flat out: Are the Pikes in it for themselves, or are they working for someone?
2: I don't think they're working for anyone. I think when we you go back and look at their track record in the Clone Wars, they tried to get out of the Shadow Collective pretty much like all the time, and they got dragged in a couple of times, but they ended up leaving and Then when you look at solo um the whole thing with Crimson Dawn is that they didn't want to they didn't want to break the subtle, fragile truce that they had with the Pike syndicate there, where it feels like they were um. You know, working uh, on their own and had their own muscle and, and sort of um, not dealing with other people. The most recent bit in the canon we've had outside of Book of Boba Fett to deal with the Pikes was the Bounty Hunter uh, comic series where Crimson Dawn had stolen Han and they were there trying to bid on Han. And it felt like, again, they were their own sort of thing. Um, I don't think they're working for anybody else. I think they control the spice in the galaxy and that's a big enough fish for them to be their own thing. Although I'm not discounting the idea that maybe there's somebody bigger or badder behind what's going on with the huts. I feel like the the pikes are powerful enough to be a threat on their own. Yeah. Uh, speaking of big, bad and powerful, brad i want to know
1: what do you think do you think black k is going to come back and if so is he going to team up with Fett, or will he be a future antagonist
3: um i'm i'm thinking that he'll come back and work for fett um i feel like there's like a big opportunity to have like a cool character in fett's gang like this and Uh, for him to use him to his advantage would be very cool um, rather than just having him be an enemy who just disappears. And yeah, I just feel, I feel like Boba Fett needs someone like that because Fennec Shand is cool and all, but he needs like some really cool muscle. And other than just those two, you know, Gamorian guards um, who obviously couldn't really hold their own against uh, Black K very well. So I think it would be cool to see Black K standing among the ranks of Boba Fett's gang.
1: Yeah. And it would would be very fitting to addition to the gang, especially since, like, I think almost everybody else so far, including the Gamorrean guards, the mods, like, uh, the Rancor, are are all seen as, like, you know, monsters or people that, you know, it, it feels like he's building this tribe of people that kind of reflect him in a way that, like, if that makes sense. And I, I feel like I, I, I can see a little of Black K and I mean, they were both bounty hunters. It's definitely a reflection there. N- now that we have some forward momentum here, are we still going to get the flashback dreams every episode?
2: I think so. I think they're going to show us different things. I think the one unanswered question that we have between, or the two unanswered questions we have between this and Mandalorian Much as I can just guess about how it happens, but what puts Fett on the quest to find his armor and get his ship? And those are, those are questions that I think they're going to give us answers to. And I think getting him through his Tusken storyline is the path to do that over the next few episodes.
1: Yeah, And I guess we also have to see him get revenge on that, uh, that biker gang and uh, maybe possibly find out that the Pikes were behind that and <laughs> leading to where, where we are in the future storyline. Um, d- do you think we're going to see flashbacks with Django Fat?
2: I hope so. And Tamir Morrison has been saying, like, I'd really love to see where guys like uh, Commander Cody and, or, uh, you know, Cody and Rex are. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled that wrap it out of a hat too if you've been looking at his his interviews over the last week or so yeah do you guys have any other
1: speculation
3: not particularly just yet i think we covered everything
1: yeah i do want to mention that dave filoni is at least according to imdb which is sometimes wrong is credited to co-writing and uh and directing episode six of the season so uh so I guess what what I'm saying, guys, is let's make bets That's, on which Filoni character is going to appear in the penultimate episode of the Book of Bone Fett.
2: He has all of the pieces. If Filoni's co-writing it, usually that means Ahsoka's involved, right? And they've got Tamara Morrison going around saying, like, Rex and Cody. Mm-hmm. I don't want to build anybody's hopes up, but like if Filoni's <laughs> directing it and writing it, those are like his pet People and he has all those ingredients and and pieces on the board to make that happen. Why not have Ahsoka and Rex have a live action reunion on uh, Tatooine? Unless this takes Fett off of Tatooine, which is possible, and have them deal with Boba Fett. Who knows? Who knows? That's wild speculation.
1: Well, it's funny. I, I'm not sure if it was you or someone else uh, said this uh, to me. But if you had asked me which which series was going to take place all on Tatooine and which would co- go off of Tatooine between Boba Fett and Obi-Wan, I would have picked Obi-Wan as the one that stays on Tatooine. And it seems like it's the opposite of that. So uh, the other thing I think I mentioned on a news episode of this podcast is Morrison teased that there's going to be a major surprise in Book of Boba Fett Episode 7. Like he was building up it as a... A wow kind of surprise. Do either of you have any theory as a, theories on what that could be? This is what he said. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up. He said, okay. Yeah, we've got some good stuff coming up. Oh,
2: wait till episode seven. Wow. I mean, he seems like the sort of person who'd be very pleased with playing a second role.
1: Mace Windu.
3: Mace Windu.
1: Okay. Uh, This is where we wrap it up, I guess. If you have any theories, speculation, any comments, concerns, you can send it to me at peter.com. You can find all our work at slash.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please rate and view this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.